Week 14 of a 14-week NFL season, mid-December 1972. Most teams in the AFC were happy right now to have nine wins, something that ensured a trip to the playoffs and a chance to head out west to play in Super Bowl VII in L.A. But for the Miami Dolphins, coached by future Hall of Famer Don Shula, nine wins was child's play. They had win number nine by the middle of November. A win at home against Baltimore this afternoon, and they'd be able to say they ran the table in the regular season. This is Josh Lewin, and this is the Perfect Season Podcast, celebrating the fact that, well, spoiler alert, Miami did knock down all the bowling pins and, in fact, would win the first of consecutive world titles before too long. But first things first, let's tell you what happened in Week 14 at the Orange Bowl with 80,000 delirious fans packed in there waving those white handkerchiefs and singing the new hit song, Miami Dolphins Number 1. The Dolphins fans were number one all season. Every game is sellout, the season ticket wait lists, and the players absolutely feeling that hometown love. The fans, the coaching staff, everybody. Veteran long snapper Howard Kindig was popular, and he remembers it like this. Martina Navajarova put it best when she said one time that she wasn't involved until she was committed. She said, you got to understand the difference between involvement and commitment. You got to think about it like ham and eggs, where the chicken's involved and the hog is committed. <laughs> That's a powerful concept, man. Yeah, leave it to Howard Kendig to drop a line like that on us. Hey, these were colorful times in Miami and all across the nation. Crazy fashions, love-ins, you name it. The women's liberation movement swelling to the point that I Am Woman by Helen Reddy was making its way to the top of the charts. Well, that and Papa was a Rolling Stone by The Temptations, and I can see clearly now by the legendary Johnny Nash. That one may be most appropriate for Dolphins fans because, indeed, gone were the obstacles in their way. It seemed like it was going to be a bright, bright, sunshiny day, as it usually was in South Florida. And this day, no exception. As the Colts had come to town with an aging Johnny Unite as the quarterback, Johnny U was on his last legs in Baltimore and, in fact, didn't start this game as the 5-8 and eight Colts were trying to see what they had in young Marty Domries instead. Now, the answer was not much, because the Dolphins' defense showed up again. In two starts in 72 for Domries against Miami, zero points generated. 131 yards passing on this day, and the Colts turned the ball over a whopping six times as the Finns would coast to a shutout win. 16-0 the final in a game with only one touchdown, but it was a fun one to watch and certainly to listen to, as we do now, courtesy of the great Rick Weaver. Warfield switched to the far side till he comes to the near side. Zonka sets as a slot man right, kick is the other back, Morrill drops back to throw, fires the middle, caught by Warfield, he's in for the touchdown! And the future Hall of Famer Paul Warfield has his memories even now of that day. Baltimore had not been as strong as it had been, uh, certainly in the other two years that we had played against them, but uh, nevertheless, they were a competitive team, and, um, you know, we knew we were undefeated at that time. Uh, people started talking about it, but uh, we wanted to, of course, keep not necessarily the street going. We didn't want to lose a ball game, but I wanted to keep our edge because what we were really focused on was the playoffs getting to the playoffs and proving to the press again 
that uh, somewhat disrespected us uh, the year before and labeling us, labeling us as uh, uh, pretty much another old AFL team, not, you know, on par with the old NFL and the Dallas Cowboys. Warfield on this day would finish with two catches, 35 yards. Pretty pedestrian, right? And it was a pedestrian season statistically for him. 29 catches, 600 yards, only three touchdowns. But Jim Kick out of the backfield chipped in 21 catches this season. Howard Twilley had 20. He had Briscoe, Fleming, Stowe, and Mandich all in the teens. Yes, America, the undefeated Miami Dolphins did not have a 30-catch receiver on the entire roster. But they did have a stable of running backs who had scored 24 touchdowns in these 14 games. Mercury Morris with half that total, not bad for the supposed third wheel in that backfield. But back to the gentleman assassin, Mr. Warfield. You may know the rest of that story a bit. A couple more years for him in Miami, a contract dispute that catapulted him to the upstart World Football League where he played for the team in Memphis. He'd returned to his old team, the Browns, to finish his playing career, then retire to become a sportscaster in Cleveland and also run a company that manufactured official NFL merchandise. Then he eventually moved to the California desert to a town called Rancho Mirage. No mirage regarding this Miami defense. They were rock solid in 72, and everyone in football knew it now. Other teams had bigger names, but only the Dolphins could say they were holding opponents to 12 points a game. And speaking of holding, that was a call that almost never came down against the vaunted Miami offensive line. The guy who had really emerged in 1972 was the Miami native Larry Little, the only hometown Miami player on the roster. He had grown up in the 50s and early 60s in Overtown, just north of downtown. From his home on 19th Street and 4th Ave, he could walk to Booker T. Washington High School unimpeded by the 836 I-95 interchange, which wouldn't show up until 1969. Larry's older brother, George, would become an actor and singer, and Larry's much younger brother, David, would follow Larry's path into the NFL in the 80s. And as a kid, Larry would walk the two miles to the Orange Bowl routinely to watch the University of Miami football games before he headed off to college himself at Bethune-Cookman. Little had signed originally for $750, not with the Dolphins, but with the Chargers, liking the idea of getting out of town. He wasn't playing much out there in San Diego, but he was ready to make his home there. He loved the different culture, and then in spring of 69, in a local bar of Miami called The Satellite, he ran into his old high school teammate Mark Lamb, who at the time was with the Dolphins as a cornerback. Little had just learned about a trade, and he told Mr. Lamb, guess what? I've just been traded home to Miami. And wow, said Mac, we'll be teammates again. That's so great. Mm, no, said Larry Little. I'm sorry to tell you this, brother, but I was traded for you. Lamb would end up getting cut by the Chargers. He'd end up back in Miami soon enough coaching high school ball. Larry Little, meantime, came home, lost weight, and became a star. He had ballooned up to near 300 pounds in San Diego, but he got down to 285, then later 265 as a Dolphin, and his career really took off. His favorite play was the one where he'd pull around Norm Evans on his right and lead Mercury Morris on the sweep. It was poetry sometimes. And Little gave back to the Miami community plenty. He and a few friends started the Gold Coast Summer Camp for Kids from the kids in Overtown in Liberty City. There was never any charge to attend, Tragically, the year before, 
all this. In July 1971, Larry's big brother George, who had fallen on a hard times, was shot and died the night of his 30th birthday. And that happened just before a big fundraiser for that camp. Larry showed up. He always showed up. Larry Little certainly had some hard times, but his attitude was always terrific, and his play on the field was simply outstanding. The Hall of Fame caliber guard on the other side of the talented center Jim Langer up front was Bob Kuchenberg, a six-time Pro Bowler, by the way, and he was out of Hobart, Indiana, having played his college ball at Notre Dame. Drafted originally by the Eagles, he was let go out of training camp in 69, hooking on with the team in the Continental Football League, the Chicago Owls. That's where GM Joe Thomas found him. He signed him for the 1970 season, and a starting guard was cemented from that point on. And we mentioned Langer, the center, future Hall of Famer. He's one of only five Dolphin players to get elected in his first year of eligibility. Dan Marino, Don Shula, Jason Taylor, and the guy we talked about a while ago, Paul Warfield. Langer was an unlikely South Beach guy. Like the owner, Joe Robbie, he was from the upper Midwest small-town Minnesota, and then South Dakota State for college. He had his degree in economics, and it looked at first like he wouldn't make it in the NFL. The Browns had him, then cut him. Similar story to Kuchenberg. Miami was wise enough to grab him, and in this 1972 season, Langer played literally every single snap. Miami was the rare team where the tackles were hardly talked about, but the guards and center got so much glory. Left tackles in particular seem to get love for how they protect a quarterback's blind side. But in 1972, when the Dolphins were running more than throwing, it was that up-the-middle gang of Little, Langer, Kuchenberg that's remembered most fondly to this day. If you did want to look to the outside of that old line, well, Dolphins fans were treated to look way outside those tackles because if you look to the boundary, that's where you found the 30-year-old, the all-pro receiver, Paul Warfield. We'll get back to him again in a minute. The company he kept included Howard Twilley, Marlon Briscoe, Otto Stowe, let's not forget Jim Mandich and Marv Fleming. Fleming, a veteran who had come in from Green Bay, was often overlooked in the passing game, but he was a tremendous blocker. Part of that core that was so underappreciated, and we have a Dolphin here that can talk about that, the special teams man from 1972, Eddie Jenkins. There are little things that you take from everybody. Marv Fleming, the steady guy. You watch Marv when he was with Green Bay probably the best blocking tight end in the game. Uh, you know, he had, uh, you know, he didn't, didn't have great hands, but the things that you threw to him, he caught, you know. So you get to see that, and then you see the personalities in the locker room. You see, uh, you know, uh, just how the the line interacts as, as players and friends, and you get in the locker room, you see a couple of them smoking cigarettes and chilling out and uh, just talking shop. Just great, great, great talk man it was just good watching this thing and sure enough in this game nicotine and all it was another one of those all hands on deck kind of victories another game where baltimore would fail to score a single point against miami second time this year and the offense had moved the ball enough against this team even though they were settling for field goals on a few of their drives this afternoon offensive lineman doug crusan was asked about this matchup that pitted coach shula against his old team well they had uh Mike Curtis was their middle linebacker, and he was excellent. Uh, you had Bubba Smith on one side. I had a guy named Roy Hilton on my side. Uh, just good football players. That's a solid team. You know, that was uh, uh, the old NFL team 
that was solid as heck and very well put together. Don Shula always had mixed feelings about playing Baltimore. He had been a tremendous success there, but he and ownership were at odds after the Super Bowl three loss to the Jets and the eight-win season that had followed. So when Joe Robbie offered the coach a $70,000 a year contract and the powers of general manager and a 10% ownership stake in the team after that season, Don Shula jumped. Baltimore's ownership cried foul at an NFL meeting in 1970 in Hawaii. They alleged that Robbie's hiring of his coach violated the league's prohibition on tampering. Well, Commissioner Rosell found the Dolphins in violation, and as punishment, Pete Rosell awarded the Colts Miami's first-round pick in 1971. That turned out to be running back Don McCauley. Well, no big deal, because the Dolphins had Butch and Sundance. They had Zonka and Kick, and now Mercury Morris as well. Here's defensive lineman Vern Den Herter on his memories of the guy they got from Baltimore, Don Shula. I, I think, first of all, I would say, uh, t- to me, uh, he was the boss. And there was no question about what he wanted from you and from his team. And, and it was all about the team. And, and that was uh, something that, that was not questioned. And, and I think it, it has to be that way. Well, the drama in this game for Shula and moreover coming out of this game, who would be his starting quarterback next week in the playoffs? Bob Greasy was a star in 70, 71, in this first part of 72. But once he got hurt in week five, the veteran Earl Morrill had come in, as he had for Shula in Baltimore three years before. And Morrill steered the ship perfectly to the tune of 9-0. Well, Greasy recalls his thought process as he was working his way back from that ankle issue way back in October, whether or not he was in on this going undefeated possibility. He recalls that he and Jim Langer were talking about that exact thing around week 10. So do you think we can go undefeated? No. No, we can't go undefeated. He said, nobody's ever done it. He says, we can't do it. He says, well, Langer, Langer says, well, who's, who's going to beat us? Well, the Jets. We had the Jets that week. The Jets. No, they can't beat us. Uh, that's they the Jets. They can't beat us. The next game was New England. The, the Patriots. They weren't that good back then. They they can't beat us. So then who else? Buffalo. We've got the Buffalo Bills. No, they can't beat us. So <laughs> so so they went through through all four of the teams we had left to play in the seasons. Is well. We're ten and zero right now. We, you know, that. But they never, they left it in the sauna. They didn't bring that out uh, until after the season's over with. We're talking about it years, years in advance. Now everyone had so much respect for Bob Greasy, the way he handled himself on and off the field. The coach's son, David Shula, was 13 years old that season, and he had this to say: He was. You know, I've been around the game a lot and coached the game a lot. And, and, and I think back all the quarterbacks I was around, I would say he was the most cerebral of, of everybody I've ever been around. And, and how uh, I got to the point where I was not in that season, but later on when I got a little older, Tim Robbie was the statistician during that season where he would write the plays down during the game. And then I inherited that role and, while Bob was still quarterbacking. And, and Bob would, would grab that chart and had all the plays and what we thought the defenses were. Uh, based on what the coaches upstairs had seen and and he would review you know each series and 
Um, and then he was calling the plays uh, back then, uh, different than the way it's structured today uh, with the great, you know, helmet communication systems they have going on. And uh, so Bob was calling the plays and, and very thoughtful, very unselfish. Uh, he was going to, if you look back at the statistics from, of, from that season, you know, the Dolphins played great defense. They chewed up the clock because they had two 1,000 yard rushers uh, in that season. Uh, and, and Bob understood how, uh, in, in talking with Monty Clark, the O line coach, and Coach Snellenberger, uh, the offensive coordinator, you know, what, what plays to run against the different looks. And he would change plays at the line and he would, you know, call the call plays based on their game plan and situations uh, during the game. And, and that was just able to, to execute and so accurate, great, great athlete. Uh, but he, he, you know, and my dad was one of the things my dad would talk about uh, in, in transforming Bob uh, from a runaround scramble quarterback, you know, in his early days, a lot of the time because he had to, to being somebody that would stay in the pocket, get rid of the ball quickly instead of, you know, trying to make the miraculous, you know, scramble run big play and, and put himself out there and uh, where he's getting hit by the defense. And, you know, he really became a, a, a great tactician um, and so much so that, you know, he ended up in the Hall of Fame. Deservedly so. Greasy, always so thoughtful and unselfish. He did not have gaudy numbers in 72. Neither did Earl Morrill, really. In fact, in terms of quarterback rating, which wasn't even a thing back then, neither guy was above 91. Then again, most guys back then were in the 60s and 70s in that department. The great Joe Namath, quarterback rating of 72. Johnny Unitas, 71. Terry Bradshaw in Pittsburgh, 64. Different time, no doubt. But Greasy was quick to tell anyone who asked. It wasn't about flash or big-time numbers anyway. It was about letting that run game get in gear and just playing a little keep away. You're exactly right because our system on offense was run the ball, keep keep the ball, keep your defense on the sideline and keep their offense on the sideline. No matter how good they offense were, if our, if our defense was on the sideline and we were on the field offensively, um, they they couldn't score any points and and uh, um, maybe that maybe that I never thought about that but maybe Kazi Russell not not letting them score uh, maybe that's why I called a lot of running plays made a lot of first downs. Well, Greasy would get in in this game just to test things out. He completed two of three passes. Earl Morrill had gone seven of fifteen before that. It was indeed enough to win, but the real star of this show this day was the defense. We mentioned earlier the Dolphins forced half a dozen turnovers this particular afternoon. That included linebacker Doug Swift picking off the great Johnny Unitas on what would be Johnny's last ever pass as a Baltimore Colt. And Doug Swift remembers that for sure. Well, it was, it was wonderful when it happened, you know, and, and then, and then the, the whole thing came a little unglued. Because Johnny Lowe was ready for the uh, for the old folks home, that would have been his last game. But San Diego picked him up the next year, and he had another season. So I didn't get the last pass of his career, which would have been, you know, that would have been something that on the over the mantle, right? 
but uh, the, apparently he was getting pulled down by his jersey, air ball up, and it you know, just landed in my hands. And I was just, I was so astounded and happy realizing that this was the end of the game. He's not coming out again, and I got Johnny's last pass. That was the pick that sealed the win on this mid-December afternoon, sealed a 16-0 final and a date with the Cleveland Browns in the first round of the playoffs. A game that would be played eight days later and put them one step closer to that Super Bowl win that they had fumbled away the season before. We go back to Doug Crusan, a fifth-year player on the team now, who had seen the epic climb up close from under 500 to undefeated in just a few years' time. Um, well, 50 years, uh, nobody would have thought it would have happened. Keep in mind that we did not sit in the locker room before a game saying, oh, we're 10-0. Nobody ever thought about it, Josh. That was not the goal that year. The goal that year, we got beat by Dallas in Super Bowl six. So the whole goal was to get back to the Super Bowl. And people, you know, asked ask me a question, well, did you guys know where you are? I said, if you knew where you are, there's a guy called Coach Shula that would have reminded you where you are. So we're going to leave it with that. And nobody did that. But there it was in plain sight. Everyone could see it. There was one undefeated team in the NFL at season's end. The ones wearing turquoise jersey tops and waving to their adoring fans. The Dolphins in this finale had put a bow around the regular season, not just with a shutout victory, but they almost made it through this game without a single penalty. One was their total on a day when they got 86 yards on the ground from Mercury Morris, 71 from Larry Zonka, Three interceptions in the game, three fumble recoveries to supplement three Garoya Premian field goals. One concern about Mercury Morris, though, he took a pounding in this game, trying in vain to get a thousand yards for the season. The Colts' hard hitting linebacker Mike Curtis was Mercury's shadow, and he made life miserable for Mercury Morris down the stretch of this game. It appeared Mercury had indeed ended with 991 yards. Everybody very bummed about that nine yards shy of spinning that odometer to the coveted thousand yard season that Larry Zonka already had. But lo and behold, four days later, word would come from the NFL office. After practice the next Thursday, Don Shula had a little announcement to make. The league had reviewed a disputed play from earlier in the season, the October 22nd game against Buffalo. Earl Morrill in that game had tossed a lateral to Morris that never got there. A defender had tipped the ball fell on it, and the refs had given Buffalo possession. The Dolphins were sure it was an incomplete forward pass, and somehow Morris, who had never touched the ball, had been assessed a nine-yard loss on that play. But now, upon further review, the committee had changed the status of the play to a fumble by Morrill. So those missing nine yards added to those 991, yeah, got Morris to 1,000 on the button. See how nicely things were working out for Miami in 72? Next week, the playoff game against the 10-4 Cleveland Browns. Paul Warfield's former team. Many other players and coaches with ties to that team and to that part of the country. Cleveland had started the season 2-3, and three, but got really hot down the stretch. The only loss in that run was at Pittsburgh, which may or may not be a place the Dolphins would have to go in December as well. This Miami-Cleveland game would be a fascinating matchup. Well before Miami-Cleveland was a thing because of LeBron James, having taken his talents to South Beach. We'll explore the original 
Miami-Cleveland Throwdown if you're kind enough to visit us again next week. For our many guests today, this is Josh Lewin thanking you for your time. Until next time, the 72 Dolphins through the regular season thicket, coming out without a scratch on their bodies or a wrinkle on their shirts. 14 wins, zero losses. And again, your happy final from December 16th of that year. Miami 16, Baltimore nothing. Nothing.